Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at the last verses in this uh, chapter. We've been spending the last weeks looking at the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus uh, through the gospel of Mark. And uh, today we come to a passage that is, um, is kind of a challenging passage. You know, there are a lot of things that we get serious about in our lives. Um, if someone were to run a movie of your life, what would they observe that you're serious about? Uh, where, where do you spend your time? What disappoints you? What gives you a lot of joy? What, what's a dream that captivates your life? Some people are very serious about uh, physical exercise, and they would not think about missing a, a day exercising, maybe going for a jog or going to the gym. Or maybe you pass the gym on the way to the donut shop and you go, that's where my gym is. I should go inside and see what it looks like sometime. You know, many of us have watched uh, or, or will watch a football game this weekend. And uh, I heard someone describe uh, football as 20, uh, 24 people badly in rest being watched by 50,000 people badly in need of exercise. And that maybe describes us. Uh, but what claims your time? What claims your energy? What claims your, your money, your thoughts, uh, your actions, your words? This passage that we're looking at today is about seriousness in an area where sometimes a lot of us maybe aren't as serious as we should be. And that is about sin. It's one of these uplifting passages here. So are you a person that's serious about sin? And is your life shaped by that seriousness? Does it shape you in the way you do things when you're all alone? For all the display of Christ's glory uh, and the growing clarity that the disciples were having about Jesus and his redemptive mission, uh, especially on the Mount of Transfiguration, given the fact that they were arguing, remember we looked at in the last recent weeks, they were arguing about who's going to be the greatest among them. Uh, these men, the disciples, lacked a seriousness about sin. So let's read what Jesus says to them and we'll talk about it. So uh, starting in verse 42, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to, into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make, make it salty again? Have salt 
among yourselves and be at peace with each other. This is God's word. Well, you know, one of the things about going systematically through the Bible is that you uh, talk about passages that are sometimes uh, not so easy to talk about, that you would maybe choose to not talk about. Uh, So this is Jesus just telling it like it is to the disciples. And this is one of the most graphic and serious descriptions in the New Testament of sin. Uh, You know, every part of our lives are about choices. Um, And and if we're going to obey God and and live in obedience to him, there are choices that impact our lives, our walk with him and our relationship with other people. It impacts our conversations, our relationships. It impacts what we do with our money and how we spend our spare time. I think what lulls us to sleep and this is on your outline, is that most of our moral choices are made in little moments that don't seem important, but end up shaping the way we live the big moments in life that come our way. Life in this world is all about those little moments. The other thing that's very clear in these verses, and this is also on your outline, is that we are accountable for the choices we make. We are accountable for the choices we make. The framework of this passage is that we all answer to God. But let's look at the discussion on the gravity of sin. The first thing that God desires for us, number one on your outline, is a radical integrity. Verse 42, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. So this is talking about how we live our lives in front of other people. And Psalm 26, 1, it's on your outline, says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. So the way we're to live our lives in front of others so that a millstone is not hung around our necks, so that we're not judged by the way we live our lives in front of other people, making one of these little, making one of God's children to fall, then we have to live a life of integrity. and In other words, a life of honesty, a life of obedience before God, being consistent even when it's hard. And it is hard to be consistent. We all know that. When the German police uh, came after Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a pastor, to arrest him in Germany, uh, he wrote what he believed the church was going to need. And here's what he said. What the church will need, what our century will need, are not people of genius, not brilliant tacticians or strategists, but simple, straightforward, honest men and women. So what does that look like in everyday life? Well, I I read recently about a young boy who was seven years old, Tanner Muncy, and he was playing Little League Baseball, and he never thought that he would end up in Sports Illustrated, but he did. And what happened was that he was uh, playing second base, and a ball was hit, and he caught the ball, and a runner was running from first to second, and the umpire behind the plate uh, in the Little League game called him out, and, uh, and he went back to his bench, and Tanner ran up to the umpire and said, you know what, I didn't tag him, I missed the tag. So the umpire said, well, thank you for your honesty, and sent the boy 
to second base from the other team. Well, two weeks later, Trevor's playing again, and he is, um, or Tanner is playing again, and he's, he's playing shortstop this time. And a runner is trying to go, run from second to third, and Tanner tags him. Same, um, same umpire in the back of home plate. And uh, Tanner said, when he tagged him, the umpire said, you missed the tag, he's safe. And Tanner looked discouraged. And uh, the umpire remembered him and said, hey, come up here. What's going on? And he said, I did tag him. And so she called the boy out. She changed her call. Called the little boy out. Well, the other coach, as you can imagine, came out to argue with the umpire. And the umpire explained what had happened and said, you know what? I, this kid's honest. I got to give him the call. So the umpire, the other coach sat down and, and uh, somehow that got to a writer and ended up in Sports Illustrated. Because that's the way we all want to live our lives. That's what motivates us when we hear a story like that. We, I want to live a life of integrity like that before other people. When we live a life of integrity, it, it, we, we are, we're encouraged when we see that. This is the kind of integrity we want. So is this the kind of integrity you live in every area of your life? Little ones in verse 42 is Jesus using an affectionate term for those who follow him and those who believe in him. And he's saying that we, we just, if, if, if we just cause one disciple to stumble, uh, it would be better to, to, for us to be given a pair of cement shoes and thrown into the ocean uh, without any breathing apparatus. So Jesus is reminding us, still in verse 42, that the obligation God has given us is to influence the people around us for him. We're living not just for ourselves, we're living for the kingdom of God. God has drafted us, if you will, as to be a part of his family, to live our lives in front of other people. So this is on your outline. Jesus is saying we shouldn't be comfortable just being consumers of the faith. God desires us to be instruments in his hand. This is what Paul's trying to get across in 1 Corinthians 12 when he says that we work together as a body, that we grow and every joint and ligament does its part. So is your influence around you making a positive impact for the kingdom? Are you representing God well in your life, in every part of your life? So the cause to stumble there he's talking about means to cause somebody to doubt or question. None of us live the Christian life perfectly. We know that. That's a given for all of us. But if you say you're a believer and live inconsistently, what will happen is that those around you will ask, wow, is is this the kind of person I want to be? Is this the kind of God I want to follow in my life? And cause them to stumble can also mean to tempt someone to sin. Maybe in my selfishness, in my anger, I, I, uh, I point somebody away from the Lord instead of bring them to the Lord. And so let me ask you, if you're a husband or a wife, does your relationship with your spouse encourage their hope in God? For them to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord? If you're not married, if you're, if you're single, uh, are you modeling Christ-likeness in your friendships? 
If, you ever, if you're a parent, do, do your words and actions toward your children inspire their faith? What kind of picture to your children are you painting as one who lives under the authority of God? None of us are perfect. We all fail. But when we do, do we admit it? Do we ask forgiveness where we need to ask forgiveness? And so, are you partnering with God to impact the people around you for the kingdom? You know, maybe you think people aren't watching. Uh, Don't be so sure. Maybe someone you love deeply. Maybe your spouse, maybe a child, maybe a grandchild is seeing what you're doing and it's impacting them for good or for bad, for the kingdom of God or not. There's also an upside here and that is that our lives and our words have the potential of greatly encouraging people to live for the kingdom of God. The second thing that God calls us to, number two on your outline, is a radical holiness. And this is in terms of of living our own lives and and internally, in terms of our own self. His words could not be more graphic. Look at verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your foot, if your eye, pluck it out. Whatever it is. So we know this is hyperbole. It's exaggeration for the sake of emphasis. How do we know that? Because we're not to be taken, their bodily mutilation is forbidden in Deuteronomy. You've got the references on your outline. But I think Jesus is covering every single area of our lives where we might sin. What we see, where we go, what we do. Our hands and our feet and our eyes are, are just gateways to the struggle. So you've got it on your outline. The question is, do your feet take you where you, sh- you shouldn't go? Do your hands reach out for what you shouldn't desire? Do your eyes look at what you shouldn't consider? Man, those are powerful word pictures that Jesus is giving the disciples and giving us. As important as they are, it's better to lose them, in other words, than to let them prevent you from entering eternal life in in, in God's kingdom. And the point is, we are to take sin seriously. That's what he's saying. Have you ever had someone say something and and they seem to be surprised at what came out of their mouths? Themselves? Well, Jesus answered where that comes from. It comes from our heart. He says it in Mark chapter 7. One author in commenting on these verses said this, very little if any sin comes out of your heart that didn't first enter through your eyes. The parts of our body are only the instruments we use to gratify the lust that comes from within. What Jesus was teaching was a ruthless cutting out of sin from our lives. That's what he's saying. That's what this passage is about. And so to take sin seriously, we're to ruthlessly cut out the sin in our lives. Sin doesn't always look dangerous. Maybe it even looks attractive to us. And that's the challenge of living in this world. You might win an argument, but you might be so unloving and so unkind in the way you argue and win that argument that it turns people completely away from the Lord. 
Sometimes we think it's important to win an argument when we talk about the Lord, uh, to, to convince them of whatever. But oftentimes that will turn them off more than draw them in. It hardens them in their position because what they're watching is how you communicate to them. And if you're loving them way more than your words. If you've spent time filling your eyes and your minds with pornographic images and it hasn't been disgusting to you, then you realize in God's eyes it is. It is disgusting. Sin twists the truth. If you're a glutton and mouthful leads to mouthful leads to mouthful of what seems like a delight and you, 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 and you don't realize that's destructive because you're not caring for the body God gave you to care for, that's dangerous. So how do we do that? Well, what are we focusing on? What are we feeding, if you will? There's an old American Indian tale about... Um, uh, about this chief talking to a bunch of his uh, braves and he said, I was talking about the struggle within and he said, it's like two dogs fighting inside of us, the chief told him. And sometimes the good dog wins and is doing the right thing and sometimes uh, the other dog always wants to do what's wrong but sometimes he wins. And uh, one young brave said, so who's gonna win in the end? And the chief said, whoever you feed Whichever dog you feed is going to win. So, you know, we need to ask ourselves, and and this is what Jesus is calling us to. It's on your outline. Jesus is calling us to costly discipleship. That means we need to keep our eyes fixed on him. We keep our eyes fixed on the cross. We're obedient to him. We, We fill our minds with the truth of his word. You know, years ago, I worked with drug addicts in Paris, and uh, what we would do, and one of the guys that was in charge of this program said that he found the most effective thing was, was filling their mind with God's word, and so we worked on memorizing scripture together. And that is the best thing that we can do, to, to be able to have that word right there that we can meditate on. So these verses are hard words to hear, but... They're like a grace to us because God in his grace is reminding us again of of what pleases him and what doesn't please him. And so we need to pay attention to that. 1 John 2, 15 to 17 is, is the same kind of idea. Do not love this world and the things this world offers you. And then in verse 17, he says, and and this world is fading away along with everything that people crave, but anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. And so our focus should be on making decisions in light of eternity. Sometimes we make our decisions and we're not thinking of eternity. We're thinking of the next minute or two. Sometimes we have to, but as much as we can, if we can make decisions in light of eternity, And so we can ask ourselves, what what are we reading? What's filling our mind other than the Bible? Do we have any media, any kind of media, our phones, our computers, our our televisions, where we're watching things that we shouldn't be watching? And how long do we spend on that? And how long do we spend with the Lord and the Word every day? Maybe just the comparison will let you know why your mind is where it is. 
Where do our minds go when we don't have anything else to think about? If, if our answer, if your answers right now convict you, what God is saying is do something about it. And don't wait till tomorrow. Do it today. Do it now. Confess that to the Lord and thank him for his forgiveness. And if God is, is saying that to you, obey him. If you know something it, that's, that you need, is, is in scripture that you need to obey, do it. Are you up to date on your obedience? That's where God wants all of us. And then verse 48 continues and describes hell as a place where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Boy, that does not sound pretty. And we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus talks about hell. He talks about hell more than any other person in the Bible. Jesus deals with hell. And this is, these are the words of Jesus. Hell is a real place. Jesus knew that hell was a real place of eternal punishment. The suffering there will never end. And we don't like to focus on hell. But the good news of Jesus is so good because the bad news is so bad. And then the next thing God calls us to is radical sacrifice. That's number three, radical sacrifice. And then he has this interesting phrase, everyone will be salted with fire. Wow, what does that mean? Um, The key to understanding this is to understand that in the Old Testament, the temple sacrifices had to be accompanied with salt. Did you know that? It's pretty interesting. Leviticus 2.13 says, season all your grain offerings with salt to remind you of God's eternal covenant. Never forget to add salt to your grain offerings. Uh, one man even, uh, one king even donated all this salt and it was a storage place in the temple for salt. God's eternal covenant, and so that's what he talks about, to remind you of God's eternal covenant. So what is God's eternal covenant? We see it perfectly in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. That's what he's pointing, to, uh, pointing us to. And so salt in this verse speaks of sacrifice. Everyone who follows Christ, every disciple is to be like salt in the sense that we are to be a willing sacrifice. We know that. Paul said it like this, a verse that I'm guessing is familiar to many of you in Romans chapter 12. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is the, the, truly the way to worship him. So being a radical sacrifice means that you put to death the right to choose to live how you want to live life. It's like what Kirk was saying when he was sharing the, the verses at the beginning of his presentation. You put to death the idea that you belong to yourself. This is on your outline. You put to death the idea that you know what best what should happen in your life. You put to death, and then here it is, the, the, the blank here, you give it to God. You give it to God. It feels like death to hand over to God something you want to do. But on the other side is life. It's a living sacrifice. That's why it's a living sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that leads to a life, abundant life, eternal life. And in an Old Testament offering, along with the salt, comes fire. 
because the offerings were burnt before the Lord. And, and in fire, in scripture, it's, it's persecution. And we see it in, in these passages. You've got the references in front of you. And the, the first Peter reference, Peter writes, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering. Bonhoeffer said it like this, and you've got the, the quote on the outline. Suffering is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. That is why Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and token of his grace. Now, if we wish to be his disciples and we want to minister in Jesus' name, we need to be willing to be salted with fire, to be a living sacrifice before the Lord. And then finally, God calls us to live as salt, to live as salt in verse 50. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Salt has the idea of sacrifice, like we just looked at, but also of seasoning and preservative. Jesus reminds us, this is reminding us about our position in the world. Uh, it's like he said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth. You know, the job of salt is to make something taste good. I love popcorn. I can't imagine eating popcorn without salt. I would spit it out. It would not taste good. But when I'm done with the popcorn, what do I say? Boy, that was really good salt. No, I say it was really good popcorn because the salt flavors the popcorn. And so it, it, salt, whatever is on, whatever salt is put on, it's to flavor that and make those flavors come out and make it better. And so salt is a seasoning. But we should also remember that in the first century, they didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have freezers. So how did they preserve meat? They rubbed salt into it. And so salt was a preservative. In fact, the Jews had a saying, the world cannot survive without salt. That was a vivid reminder to them that, that they needed to have salt to keep meat from rotting. Jesus calls us to be salt, and that means to be a preservative in the world, as well as to be, as to be a flavor to the world. We're, giving, we're making people thirsty for Jesus. We all know that that's what salt does as well. It makes us thirsty. You know, William Wilberforce uh, was a man who basically single-handedly brought about the slavery emancipation bill in England. Uh, he was um, proof that a little salt would go a long way. If you've never read his biography by Eric Metaxas called Amazing Grace, I would warmly recommend you reading that. It's such a good book. But Wilberforce was a slight-built man. He was not a physical, any kind of physical specimen. In fact, one author wrote of him when he saw him speak. He said, I have watched a shrimp become a whale. <laughs> and then he described Wilberforce like this, tiny, elfish. I don't think that's the way you want to be described. Elfish. Mishappen, he was salt to British society, not only bringing preservation, but enticement to Christ by his beautiful life. Wow, 
Man, Wilberforce makes me want to live for Christ, makes me want to be a preservative, and makes me want to make people thirsty for Jesus. Jesus is saying your presence in the world is meant to influence others. That's what he's telling his disciples here. It's because you're in the world that you can make others thirsty for me. And then Jesus said this to his disciples, have, and this is another interesting phrase, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Now remember what they'd been doing. They'd been arguing. They were too embarrassed to tell Jesus what they'd been arguing about, but he knew. They were arguing about who would be the greatest. And I think most of us are reasonable enough, most of us have enough humility to admit that we don't measure up like we should to being salt in the world. We don't always take seriously the influence that we should have in the relationships God blesses us with. And we don't always take sin seriously in our lives. And so we need to hear the gospel and we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. And the gospel is this, you've got it on your outline. The gospel says that your standing with God is not based on how well you keep this passage. Why? Because Jesus has perfectly kept the requirement of these verses for you. That's the gospel. We may not be as serious about sin as we should be, but Jesus was serious about sin. And he was willing to suffer horrible injustice and horrible torture and horrible mockery and die so that sin could be defeated. That's the good news. And so because of Jesus and my failure, I don't have to hide from God. I can run to him. And I could say, Father, there are moments when I'm serious about my responsibilities, but not always. And there are moments when I, I want to live a holy life, but sometimes I blow it. And there are definitely times I want to be a part of what you're doing in the world, but sometimes I fail. And there are times I want to live a holy life, but there are times I don't. And I do want to live a holy life before you, God, and so help me be consistent so I can help grow your kingdom. Please help me. And I realize it's possible only by the grace of God. And so we, we fall on that grace and we ask God to give us his grace. And if we could amplify these words of Jesus here, he'd say it's not about you guys, it's about the kingdom of God. Turn your eyes out from yourself and on to Jesus. And you're going to carry on when I'm gone, Jesus says. Don't invalidate my message by focusing on who's the greatest and living a life of comfort and privilege. You will be misunderstood. You will be criticized until the end of your life. And again, speak, Jesus is speaking to the disciples and he says, most of you will die a martyr's death. He says this in other places. He says, most of you are gonna die that way. You will live the kind of life, you will die the kind of death that will be an honor to my message and it will turn the world, world upside down. And unless you're serious about getting sin out of your life, there won't be a difference between you and Mr. Joe Blow in the world. a lot to think about. Think about it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, will you please help us to be serious about what we should be serious about? It's like there's a battle going on in our lives and we don't want to feed the bad side. We want to feed the good dog. 
Don't ever let us lose sight of your grace. Will you empower us with your grace so that we take sin seriously? That we would long, Lord, we long to be an influence for you. Would you help us? We also pray this morning, Father, for anyone here who might not know your grace in a way that would save them from their sins and we pray their lives would be transformed by your grace. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Well, may God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of the master, Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. Amen. Enjoy some fellowship together and uh, have a great day.